Thank you for listening to the Around the Net Post Tennis Podcast. Please tune in for new episodes every Wednesday and every Sunday. Welcome back to another episode of Around the Net Post. Uh, we're here with the full contingency this uh, this episode. We have the Chipmore returning to duty. Jacob Andrews, the stat man himself, and myself, George Barford. Fellas, how have you been? Pretty good. We've, we've been playing a bunch of matches here at Belmont Abbey. We, I think we've played since the last episode. We played four matches yesterday with a you know three and one record. Got a good regional win over Augusta University. How about you, We just sweepstake, Chip. For, uh, guess how many matches Jacob's played since we last speak to him. It's always some, <laughs> some obscenely high number. How many, how many matches do you guys have on the schedule now, Jacob? 55 matches scheduled. And and is is that the record for the most like college matches of all time? It's got to be, right? It, it's definitely up there. If you, you can't technically count some of those because there's, I think, three exhibition days in there. But otherwise, you know. Okay, okay. three exhibition yeah. days. So only 48 matches or something like that. Chip, um, you'd be so proud of me this, uh, this week. I've embraced my inner chip more twice. I've had a, some some big wins at work, and I've uh, gone into the bathroom. I've like almost hit the floor of the the double knee uh, <laughs> fist bump. <laughs> that maneuver. Mm. Um, it's just a classic. Well, it's iconic. Yeah, everything's good in the world of uh, Chip Moore here. Our our women our men's team is math, but our women's team is really rolling along. We we lost one match this year. We're six and one, and. In my opinion, I think we're the favorite for the conference. So that's good to hear. What, what did we think of the uh, the episode with Coy with Coy uh, last time out? It was uh, got our highest number of, of listens. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm kind of the outsider here because I did listen to it, but uh, you know, I wasn't on the pod that day. It's it's really interesting just to hear about how uh, you know he's ambidextrous and all that. Was he like is he ambidextrous or was his was it trained into him or is he like is he naturally ambidextrous? Well, that's what I tried to ask him, and I, I think from his answer is yes. Or, you know, not like full on ambidextrous, but he can do pretty much you know everything. Yeah. Alluded to the golf, um, yeah. but pretty much everything left and right. So that's crazy. I mean, that's unbelievable. That that kid uh, Davidov, I think that you guys were talking about, he doesn't serve with both hands. He only hits four and two forehands, but that. That kid, watch out for him. He's he's going to be on the tour. That kid is serious. My old coach actually knows him. So get him on the pod, Chip. Yeah, Jacob, get him, I get him on the pod, of course. We were talking in the oh, week, gosh. Jacob, about how his humility kind of struck us. I, that was the thing that I was most surprised about. That someone so unique and has obviously won a lot of big tennis matches in his life and his career could be so down to earth. Well, also yeah. just the uh, I mean, you have to be. I feel like very disciplined in your life to kind of know that even though you have an extra year of eligibility, like know that school comes first. You know what I'm saying? Like if I had an extra year of eligibility, I wouldn't, I would not care about getting a job. I'd be like, I just want to play tennis an extra year. So that's in, that's an interesting perspective that he's kind of foregoing his last year just so he can enter the business world. Yeah. He's evidently such an intelligent guy. I was thinking about this after the pod that, but he's got, you know, two additional serves. He's got all these angles available to him. How intelligent do you have to be to actually understand what you've got available and what to employ to actually be successful, to actually understand what, your own game? What I would like to know is if he gets a ball right down the middle, what side does he choose to go to first? Do you think it's the right side or the left side? Or no, I think it's his left. It, you know, it was about six months ago, but yeah, he does. I think it's the left-hand side. Because his grip is, is slightly different. He mentioned it that. 
you know, I think on the left-hand side, he holds it at the, the bottom. And then when he goes to his right hand, it's, it's like halfway up. It's been pretty interesting uh, start to the, this week in terms of tennis, quite a lot of news. Chip, I wanted to get your perspective on uh, something about Rafa though, that I saw come out. It was actually at the end of last week that he's, I, d- I don't remember, I don't know when the golf tournament is, but he's, he played in the, or played, is playing the Pro-Am tournament in uh, Mallorca at a golf tournament. What, what did you think well, about that? Well, he is like, I mean, he's like a scratch golfer. If you guys, for the listeners, a scratch golfer is a very, very good golfer. And um, Cass Rude said something about, him I, I think they played in a tournament together a couple months ago and he said rafa basically has like the ugliest swing you've ever seen but he always basically does well on every single hole he plays and it's basically i think casper said it's basically because of that sheer rafa determination he just just finds a way and, and casper also said he has all of the idiosyncrasies on the golf course that he has on the tennis court like he's doing the you know, the, the butt pole, you know, the wedgie, and he's doing, like, the hair and all that on the golf course, too. So, But you're smiling. Fun. You're smiling about this, Chip. I, I think that you should be angry about this. To be honest, George, I'm, I'm kind of content with the fact that, you know, Rafa's career is kind of where it's where it's at now. I mean, he's just – I'm happy to see him play, and I'm really thankful for the years that he got. But I don't know. I don't know how much I'm expecting, really, anymore. I don't know. Jacob, you're with me on this. this. This must aggravate you even a little bit. Well, I, I think I think Jacob probably likes this because it's less competition for Novak, you know. So, well, I I didn't you know consider Rafa in contention for Novak at this point in the the twilight stages of his yeah. career. But uh, I mean, Rafa's also posted like four photos or videos in like the last day of him training um, on the court, so it's not like he's not playing tennis too. Yeah, but I I don't know. To me, it's like if if you had one of your players that was like, oh yeah, I'm injured, Chip. I can't show out for this match. But then, oh, I'm going to play play golf with the buddies. And we're not talking about, you know, four guys, a, a cooler full of beer, playing at, at, you know, some par three course. We're talking about yeah, pro-am. Know, but, but, like, I mean, the guy's won 22 grand slams. He can do whatever the heck he wants, George. And he can, but as a that's tennis, basically, I, the- And I understand, because I want the guy. There's there's a chip more in me that still has the delusional idea that he might win the French Open. And, hey, he still might, because when he gets on the court, you know, he's still the best clay court player of all time. And that aura is going to help him. Um, but maybe maybe I need to rephrase and reset my expectations. It's the pulling out of these tournaments that I don't yeah. like. And then he's doing that. And I, I know it's not my place to to judge or I, criticize. I agree with that. I agree with that. But I also, at the same time, am kind of happy when he pulls out of the terms because I really don't think he should be playing any tournaments on hard to begin with. I mean, it's just like the goal is the French Open and the goal is also to stay healthy. So what is playing a tournament like Doha and Indian Wells actually doing for him? It's doing nothing for him. Even if he wins the tournament, who cares if he wins the tournament? I sure don't. I want to be playing well at the French Open. But I think as a consumer, you should care because the, it's such scarcity now. No, no, but it is. But at the same time, the guy's giving me 22 grand slams. So I'm, I'm happy with what he's giving me. You know, and I, I can't, it feels wrong to complain because of, of, of all the things that he's given us in the past. You know what I'm saying? So you're content. Your glass is full. Jacob, unbiasedly, how, how does it, this doesn't this isn't a good look? Uh, yeah, I would. I mean, it's almost a little bit, I would say, indicative of where he is in his career, where he's, you know, he's going to make a comeback. But I don't really think that 
I mean, I think the the only part that would really be cut up is him entering some of these tournaments in the first place where he's going to pull out almost no matter what. Like, I never really thought that he was going to play at Doha. I still don't, like, I don't know if he's pulled out of Indian Wells yet, but I don't think he's going to be playing Indian Wells or Miami. And so if he just comes back for the clay court season, that was what I was expecting him to do at the beginning of the year. So it it doesn't really mess it up too much. But I think that if, you know, if he were to go out and play golf and get injured while playing golf and, like, you know, pull a hamstring or something and be out. That would, get, that would like, make me angry. I wouldn't like that that yeah, happened. That would, but but the one would, thing also is is this has always kind of been what Rafa does. He been at his worst, like, all last year he was playing golf and you know, even even like when he was younger and still more focused on the tour, he still played a lot of golf. So I don't know. It is what it is, and I'm not going to lose sleep over it. Okay, if that's if that's where you are, Chip, I'll, I'll let you be happy. I'll let you. Be I mean, content. it's just like he's he's given me so much. Who am I to be angry at the guy? You know what I'm saying? Who am I? Who am I to be angry at him? Okay, okay. And one thing that you 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 made a you made a good point in the group text uh, this week, Chip. Um, I, I know you, you was desperate to be the conversation setter um, with this with this one, but you you named a few results that need to go our way, and it did happen. So there are no one-handed backhands in the top ten anymore. Do you remember this the stat for how long? When was the last time they didn't have a single-handed backhand in the top ten? Well, well, it's never. It's the first time in the history of the ATP Tour. I mean, I mean, because you think about it, I mean. Back in the day, everyone had a one-handed backhand, so um, this is kind of the first time ever. In Spe- speaking as a coach, and technically, what does that mean? For, is it indicative of something yeah, else? Yeah, but I mean, I, I think it just I think it just tells the overall tale of just the fact that it's not taught anymore at the grassroots level. And um, but and, why? Well. I think I think especially in like in the beginning of most kids' careers, it's just it's just easier to use two hands, right? Just because they're smaller and weaker. And I think if it's if it's not like actively taught from a young age, like like this is what you have to do. It's I feel like most players are gonna or most kids are just gonna like lean towards the two hander just because it's natural. I mean, also when when I teach young kids in the summer. Yeah, you know, most of them, because they're a little bit smaller, they try to use two hands on both sides. Like they'll never use one hand on both sides. Um, and so you usually have to teach them to at least use one hand on the forehand. And and also, I mean, just from a technical standpoint, and I mean, we all have two handers, so it's not like um we're against the one like we're against the two hander. Um I think the one hander's uh it's a less effective shot. I mean especially in the corners, you know, you can't get an extra rack, rack on the ball. So most of the time you're slicing, you can't really hit hard out of the corners with a shot. And, and I think for the most part, coaches realize that and, and now it's kind of dying out. And I think it's dying out because it's just not taught as much. And I wouldn't teach it. I think it was largely Rafa that has, I mean, I would say Rafa's 90% responsible for the demolition of the one-handed backhand just because that was his strategy sure. to be to yeah. be Federer, like he just just yeah, but the, mean, the, 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 he debunked that he showed that there was an evident weakness in the one-handed backhand i've always said on clay at least no matter how good your one-hander is against rafa it's a weakness and i think rafa proved that more than any other time when he absolutely annihilated warinka in the finals like six years ago i mean because most people think warinka has the best backhand one-handed backhand of all time rafa made it look like it was nothing that day on clay so if the best one-handed backhand of all time can't handle Rafa's forehand, then 
that nobody can. Something I, I want think- both of your opinions on is whether the one is it a part down to coaches being lazy at the grassroots level of actually the one-handed backhand is a super technical shot. Am I can I be bothered to teach this or can I just you know throw two hands on it and it's a less technical shot and get by? Like you have to show real commitment to a player to teach them a one-handed backhand. I think it it starts almost a little bit before the technical part where I think that there's just one major downside to the one-handed backhand being the return. I I think it goes back almost a little bit earlier than Rafa to Agassi, who had, you know, before Novak, the best return of all time. And he had, you know, two-handed backhand on that side. It was super solid. He could take it early, take it on the rise. Like, he wasn't phased on the return. And I think as we've kind of gone through these last, you know, 10 years where the tour, like the tour slowly evolved even more away from the one-hander than previously, like you've seen, I mean, all the guys in the top 10 previously with one-handers, you can't really point out any of them that had a great return. Like Vavrinka's biggest weakness was always return of serve. Tsitsipas still struggles on return of serve. Dominic team, when he was at his most successful, had to stand 30 feet behind the baseline in order to take a big rip at the ball. He wasn't taking returns inside the baseline. Really the only person I would say with a one-hander that in recent years, at least, has shown like an ability to return well in multiple scenarios was fed by you know standing on the baseline, chipping it back early. The saber, the saber, yeah, like just just ways like that where like if you have a two hander, that becomes much easier. And you know, teaching it to a kid like you wouldn't have your you know new player start out with an inherent weakness on the return. Like you would want to set up with the, the two hander to be more solid on that side. And I think once you get into the rally. It's kind of, you know, 50-50 either way. It's not necessarily a weakness except for that higher ball on the backhand side. But otherwise, like, I think the return plays a huge factor in determining why the two-hander now is a lot more prevalent than the one-hander. No, I think that's a, that's a good analysis of that. Do you think it's the next, like, serve and volley is just going to eventually fizzle out? You know, you can name serve and volley as in, you know, top 100 on less than one hand. Do you think it's – give it five years? Uh, maybe a little bit. I think – I mean, I think you'll see it a little bit less often on the men's tour. But, you know, in college tennis, I still see a decent amount of players that have a one-hander. I mean, I would say the ratio is probably three to one, like 75 to 25 percent for two-handers to one-handers. And I think that number drops a little bit lower from, I feel like previously it was around 50-50. So I think over time it'll go down, but it's still it's still a good shot. It just, I, I think it might eventually evolve to being people learn how to return with two hands on the backhand side and then if they have the ability to they can use a one-hander in their rallies because it kind of gives you the best of both worlds in that case which it might be tougher to learn but it might be a way the sport evolves over the next 10 or 15 years that would be really cool to see i think overall though at the end of the day it is just sad that the one-hander is coming to an end because it it is a nice shot to look at it's a nice shot to watch and um and yeah, I, I mean, I would say every single one-handed player in the top 100 is a player. You're like, oh, that you know, that guy is that guy's fun to watch. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, Musetti is probably like he's is Musetti even in the top 30 anymore? 20 something. But I mean, he's had some brutal results lately, to be honest. And um, but he's, he's kind of there or thereabouts. But he's he's kind of got a little bit more buzz than other players just because he's got a nice look at one-handed backhand. In my opinion, he's a fun player to watch. So. 
Yeah, I'd agree. At the end of the, at the, end of the day, it, even, it might not be as effective shot, and but it's sad to see it go away because it's a part of the game. It's a nice shot to look at. I mean, we actually, I actually have the privilege of having two guys with one-handers on my team, so get to watch them. One of them is actually our number one. So Dan Evans has got the best one-handed backhand in tennis. I think. But Dan uh, Evans doesn't even hit the backhand; he just chips <laughs> he it. Just it, yeah. <laughs> and so it does Dimitrov. It's like they both just chip their backhands. So what are you gonna do? Well, I did want to to, to get uh, your opinion on two players that are at opposite ends of their career. Uh, the first is Andy Murray and how much he needed to win today against Jared Mensik. Um, yeah, do you guys get to watch that match at all? I heard it was unbelievable. Yeah, it was. It was a classic Murray match. Yeah. I, um, I thought thought maybe a little bit of Murray magic was coming back, but I feel like he's he lost so much lately. I feel like he's lost so much lately in the close moments that he's probably got a little bit of scar tissue when he gets close now. I would have backed him, you know, probably the last two seasons to win that type of match, but but Didn't not he, today. He had some volley in the first set that he like blew. We could have won the set or something. Yeah, it was it was there were some bad moments for sure. So so that was one. I, I you know I felt kind of sad for him really, but um, I think he needed to get the consecutive match in 2024 ticked off. Winning one's fine, but winning two is a, a world of difference. And then compare him to to Carlos Alcaraz, who lost, you know. Had to pull out this week. Lost to Nicholas Jarry last week. I know we spoke, you know, a bit about his form, but maybe he's carrying yeah, it. Was, it was too bad. I mean, that's actually, I think, two weeks ago today or, or last week, I was talking about how these two clay events were kind of going to be really, really big for him. And not only did it not work out, it kind of didn't work out in a spectacular fashion. I mean, he loses in the the semis to a guy that he beat like uh, pretty handily a couple times last year, Nicholas Jerry, and then he plays two games at Rio. So if I'm Carlos Alcaraz, I'm probably, I don't know, this is probably the, this is probably the lowest moment in my career if I'm Carlos Alcaraz. What do you guys think about that? Yeah, I think it does, has to be pretty close at this point. I mean, it's a young career. Yeah, yeah, no, he just had such yeah. a fast rise, I think, through the rankings yeah. where he never really, uh, compared to where he was playing when he was earlier in his career, like, I wouldn't really say he took bad losses then. What, I, what I would like to, to see, because obviously he's compared to Rafa more than any other player he's Spanish, is where was Rafa at 20? What what kind of, you know, what kind of record did he have? I'm sure he wasn't just dominating the tour in the way... <laughs> the way probably everyone expects Carlos to. It's he won one Grand Slam at the age of 20, and it's, it's like you can't just expect the guy to be omnipotent the entire time. But yeah. I, would, I would just like to see, in comparison, you know, did, did you know, Rafa, Roger, and Novak have peaks and valleys like, like Carlos is having at this age, too? I'd like to see the stats on that. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point. Caution to uh, to overreact for tennis viewers. Maybe it's not time to to hit the panic button. I think the good news for him is that because there's so many Masters 1000s almost in a row, there's a good opportunity for him to play himself into some form and really you know right the wrongs of 2024 so far. Yeah, no, I mean there's so much time. I mean he's still got Indian Wells, which was probably his most dominant tournament of the whole year last year, and I, I mean think, I think he's gonna be okay, but but uh. He's got to he's got to have some good wins and start feeling like himself again. Because I mean, the, the tennis world needs to have him. I mean, it's 
Imagine having Djokovic center and Alcaraz all playing their best at Indian Wells. That'd be that'd be very fun. And Rafa too. You know, he's not playing golf that weekend. <laughs> uh, I would say on the Nicholas Jerry, I was like, oh yeah, he's he's gonna hit a hot streak, just beating you know top three player in the world. Then he loses to uh, Diaz Acosta in the final. Well played to him. He gets his first uh, ATP World Tour final, but. That was just one of those like anticlimactic moments where you like you know get a yeah. career win and then lose to. I was really pulling for Jerry, not not just because of that, also because the crowd was so against him the whole week. I didn't. I mean, I, I'm not from South America. I don't. I don't know if there's some beef between Chile and Argentina, but I mean, every match he played that week was just like the crowd was just the crowd just wanted his blood, like they wanted to kill him, and he was just like. He was just like blocking it out and dominating out there. I, I wanted him to get the I wanted to get the win to finally silence the crowd one last time because they were I mean they were they really didn't like him. There was I mean nobody was clapping when he won points. Nobody. And he's such a nice guy too. If you listen to the interviews with him, like he, he's not a guy that you kind of expect he's, people to pull against. But he's a great guy. Been... When he won when he won that tournament in Chile last year and he was getting all emotional. Um, it was great. It was great to watch. And that's good. I like seeing uh, guys win. You know, I know it often happens a lot more in South America than other other parts of the world. But it's good to see guys, you know, get a title and, you know, have, you know, even if they don't achieve much more for the rest of their career, they, they do have something to show for it. Um, and not the first time we've seen his name. You know, he, he did take uh, Fritz to five sets at the uh, at the Aussie. Diaz Acosta, he's fun to watch, man. He's he's a lefty. He's got a nice spinny forehand. It was like watching Rafa Nadal out there at a young age. Guys obsessed with Rafa. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take every chance I can get to to put Rafa's name in there. You guys know that. You mentioned the comparison between Alcaraz and Nadal. I will say that there's a there's a deal been had. There. I don't know the official marketing term for it, but they're gonna play in a an exhibition. Yeah, they were actually supposed to play that exhibition last year before Rafa had basically ended his entire season, and I think it's a uh, basically a, a rematch or, you know, a rain check match of what they were going to have last year. So, um, so yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be on Netflix. It's going to be like stream live on Netflix. So that'll be, that'll be fun to watch. I'll be tuning into that. You know, like I said, Rafa plays so few times now. you got to take advantage, even if it is an exhibition match. Isn't that crazy, so too, that Netflix is now streaming stuff? Like you watch live events on Netflix. I find that so weird. And over all the events, it would be tennis related. I mean, that's pretty cool. Well, yeah, I guess, you know, it's probably falling up that break point, even though neither Alcaraz or Nadal were featured on break point. So. Alcaraz was well, on there quite a lot, though. He wasn't featured, but they got him in yeah. pretty much every episode in some capacity. Well, yeah, they, they also kind of documented Rafa's Aussie Open run. And they also had that, that famous scene where, where Casper Rouge is just, like, utterly be like shocked to be in Rafa's presence right before that final. He's like just <laughs> so uncomfortable. He's like asking when we can go on the court because he wants to get out of the situation. That was that was an awesome moment to watch as a Rafa fan. The big news out of this week though is that the schedule is out for Spring League. The thirteenth oh. of March. My team against Jacob's team, big clash. Chip, are you flying in? Will there be like some sort of ESPN plus live stream for that or it's on Netflix. Will Will Alex Gruskin be uh be commentating that match? <laughs> oh, a hundred percent. We're gonna do a triple camera, so I don't. Don't be getting yourself in that doubles lineup, Jacob. 
I haven't I haven't been out to a team practice yet, so you know I don't I don't know where I stand on this team at the moment. Your team's practicing already? Try hard. They yeah they they've had a practice without me. I had a match and they're trying to practice again this week. And I also think I have another match. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I, you're I coming out to scout. Where's it at? Uh, you know, could be anywhere. We undisclosed location in a warehouse somewhere in the middle of Charlotte. I can't wait. I'm going to trash talk so much. A moment for the for the sponsors, 30-30 Tennis. Uh, tennis is uh, best shortened format each game starting at 30 all to provide shorter, more exciting points for the consumer and player. Great opportunity to practice under pressure um, as well as play more matches in a shorter period of time. Uh, great for all players, uh, beginner to advanced level. Um, if you have uh, any questions, reach out to Mark Milne at 30-30 Tennis on Facebook, LinkedIn or Instagram. Um, talking of Instagram, uh, give us a follow on Instagram at Around the Net Post. Thank you so much for listening. I've been George Barfoot. I'm Jacob Andres. I'm Chip Moore. And remember, always go around the net post.